Before we get into the sermon, which I admit is pretty meaty and a little uh, long today, I, I just want to like point out the obvious. Some of you guys are probably like, there's something different about Emily this morning. <laughs> she got new shoes, didn't she? <laughs> That's exactly what it is. No, I, I got some new glasses. The red ones are still around, but you know, with these, I feel like I should get like a Harry Potter tattoo on my forehead or something like that. So I'm trying these out. I feel a little self-conscious. Uh, bear with me. Thanks. You like them all right? Like the round? I thought they were kind of cool. All right. Thanks. <laughs> I can't pull off the ones that Rachel has, which I think are super cool, but they just, I just look terrible in them. All right. <laughs> so with that, let us get into this sermon because it is a little bit longer here. Ken introduced the Linton sermon series last week. So we're talking about sola Jesus. It means Jesus alone. And it's a term that we chose deliberately because in Blue Ocean, we are in a larger conversation with, I would say, both the global church as well as the historical church about where the ultimate authority in the church is located, right? So this is a, a reference to the Reformation phrase, sola scriptura. And Ken gave a little bit of history last week, but we are going to press into this. I love history. If you don't love history, it's totally okay. I could see my sister like rolling her eyes or something. There'll be some like really good stories in here, all right? but we're gonna start with some dates. So from about the year 300 to roughly the year 1500, stay with me, when there were disputes in the church, the final word on what to think and how to live lay with the Pope and with the magisterium. The magisterium was like the collection of bishops in the Catholic church. And the thinking here was that Jesus once told the apostle Peter, he said to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. And Peter, his name meant rock. And so it was thought that he held the authority for the church. And then that authority was then passed down from leader to leader, which is still how the Roman Catholic church operates. So they traced their leadership or their authority back to Peter, who it came from Jesus from. And so most of the Western world during three, between about 300 and 1500 at that time was Catholic, which is a little simplified because the Eastern Orthodox Church also broke off. But in most of Europe, the Pope and the bishops had the power to make these decisions about theology and how to practice faith and how to live it out. And most people at that time were illiterate. And so they were dependent upon the priests and upon the bishops to do this interpretation of life for them. So around 1500, we had the Reformation. And these are figures, the people who are part of the Reformation are figures whose names you probably know even if you didn't grow up in the church, right? So Martin Luther, it probably rings a bell, right? John Calvin, you know, John, uh, Calvin College out in Grand Rapids was named after John Calvin. Ulrich Zwingli, a Swiss guy. And so these men and others, they looked at the corruption that was rampant in the Catholic church at the time, right? These popes at that time, were, they were no Pope Francis, who I'm, I'm a fan of in general. And they were looking at the corruption, and they were looking at how poor people were being fleeced, and they started going around preaching that the Pope actually wasn't the ultimate authority of the church, right? And this got them in trouble. But people were already starting to think this anyway, because not very long before that, there had actually been three men all claiming to be the Pope, and they all had kind of a legitimate claim to it. And it actually took a council to get together and try to settle this matter. So the council got together, and they actually convinced two of the men to step down from the papacy, but they really didn't like the guy that wouldn't step down. And he was living in France, and they really wanted a guy that was living in Rome, or at least an Italian. So this council got together, and they're like, you know what, we're just going to elect another pope. 
And so they elected another pope, and then they had the problem of still having two popes, one living in France and one that was living in Rome. And so people were wondering, they're like, okay, so where does the authority lie? If it's with the pope, which pope? If it's actually with the Council of Bishops, you know, like these people seem to be making the big decisions because the popes don't seem to be able to get things together. And so there was all of this infighting between the popes and the bishops over who was actually in charge. And so the reformers went around and they started preaching that Jesus was the head of the church. And the way that we find out about Jesus is through scripture. They looked at the pope and they said, you know, the pope is just a fallible human, capable of making mistakes. And if the Pope is just a human that can make mistakes, we need something that is infallible. And so the scripture was thought to be infallible. So therefore, scripture, they said, should hold the ultimate authority in the church. And so that slogan was and still is sola scriptura, scripture alone. Ironically, with a few other alones. Faith alone, grace alone, glory to God alone, and I think through Christ alone. But ultimate authority was said to lay in the scripture. It was the primary authority, and that manifests today in bumper stickers that say things like, the Bible, be- or, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. So the reformers answered to this problem of spiritual authority. They said, was, what we need to do is get the Bible into as many hands as possible, because then people can have this like, unbiased authority in their lives. And so they got the Bible translated into common languages like English and German, instead of the Latin that it had been in. And so we're super thankful to the reformers for that. And they started to teach people to read the Bible for themselves, which resulted in widespread literacy all over Europe. It actually changed the Western world. Pastors, well, they started to preach longer sermons, (laughs) hours long sometimes, using extensive texts from the Bible because there were people who either didn't own a Bible or who couldn't read it. And they thought they should have the opportunity also to hear the scripture for themselves. And then it was thought that if everybody could just read it or hear it for themselves, then the clarity of scripture would shine through. So the Bible was thought to be easy to read, consistent, and clear. And with like a minimum amount of effort, you could have like this unbiased authority in your life to tell you about who God is and how you could live your life. The problem was it didn't work that way. It didn't even work that way for the reformers. You know, a lot of the reformers had things in common. In fact, Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli got together at one point to see if maybe their followers could join forces in pursuit of like this common reformation they were doing. But the two of them couldn't even agree on a theological uh, matter regarding the Eucharist. Right? So Martin Luther said, okay, so when we take the bread and we drink the wine together, when a believer receives that into their body, it becomes the absolute literal body and blood of Jesus. And there are many Christians who believe that today. And Zwingli said, no, 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 these are just symbolic of the body and the blood of Christ. And there are many believers who believe that today. And over that, they parted ways. They said, we can't work together. And that was the beginning of denominational splits that have continued over the last 500 years as different Protestants who could read the Bible came to different conclusions based on what they read. So back in 2011, I read a life-changing book for me by Christian Smith, And he's a professor at Notre Dame University. He wrote a book called The Bible Made Impossible. And his premise is this. He said, Protestantism has only existed for about 500 years. And with it came a particular modernist way of reading scripture that's led to a lot of division and a lot of fracturing in the church. And he said, okay, for instance, if you take just the top 17 disputable matters in the church, just just the top 17 Disputable matters, notice the wording he used, disputable matters, 
These are things like, should women be pastors? I definitely have a, an opinion. <laughs> but that, that could be considered disputable. Is communion the real body and blood of Christ, or is it symbolic? Should people be baptized as infants or as adults? What do we believe about hell? He said, look, if you just take the top 17 and you list all of the various answers that fall within Christian orthodoxy, like they're considered orthodox answers, they can be backed up with scripture. There's more than 5 million potential combinations of orthodox belief. So the result of Sola Scriptura over the last 500 years has been 5 million different combinations of orthodox belief just with those 17 issues and 30,000 church denominations as church after church parted ways over this or that or the other, holding to the idea that their interpretation of the Bible was more authoritative than anyone else's because the Bible is clear. You know, it was interesting. I, I kept thinking of this book when I was preparing for this sermon. And I went back and I reread a couple of the chapters from it. And I noticed something that I didn't notice when I read it in 2011. What I noticed was Dr. Smith says that he strongly suggests that Protestants recover the category that he says he thinks is a very viable and robust category of disputable matters used by Paul in Romans chapter 14. And I knew Ken had read this book, but he, said he actually already had his Romans 14 and 15 stuff worked out by the time we had read this book. But he said that could be a way that we could actually bring some unity back into the church. So this is our third way approach, which is a whole nother sermon, but I think goes along very nicely with Sola Jesus. So Smith, he's looking at all of these combinations of belief, and so he questions whether or not we're reading the Bible in a way that it's actually not meant to be read. And he is not alone in this. And our church and churches like ours are not alone in asking this question. This is a much wider question going on. The question is, maybe we have placed the Bible on a pedestal it was actually never meant to occupy. And so the Reformation, I think, was a positive step. It was a positive step away from the exploitation and the corruption of the religious authorities of the day. It was a step away from having the authority of the church placed in the hands of one man. But perhaps what the Bible is asking us to do is to figure out how Christians should think well about things like war and wealth and sanctification by thinking Christologically about them, right? More than by simply piecing together this and that versus scripture into like an allegedly coherent puzzle picture. And so thinking Christologically just means thinking about everything in light of who Jesus is. And this isn't just the Jesus recorded on the pages in the Bible. This would be the conversation that we're having with the reformers of the past. It's also the Jesus with whom we have a relationship and who we experience in our lives. Right? If Jesus is the head of the church, which the reformers said, and I agree with, then Jesus is actually alive today, then he can still speak. Right? When Jesus ascended into heaven, we, he didn't turn to us and say, okay, that's it, you guys, you're on your own now, based on a few stories that will eventually get written down and compiled into some sort of canon in 300 years. No, what he said to his disciples was, in John 16, he said, look, I've got much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when the spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth. He's going to speak not on his own. He will speak only what he hears from the Father, and he will tell you what is yet to come. And so Jesus seems to be saying that it's not just the scripture that's going to lead us into all truth, but it's the Holy Spirit, right? And this is a spirit who certainly works through the scripture, but it's a spirit who also certainly is not limited to scripture. And if we're looking to be led into truth, then we're open to a living connection with this Holy Spirit, like we're looking to tap in to the spirit of a God who is love. And there should be no bad news in connecting with the spirit of a God who is love. 
a God who wants to guide us in our lives, as well as in, like, individually, as well as in our collective lives. And the spirit is said to be very much just like the breath that we breathe into our bodies. Right? It's near, and it's intimate, and it's accessible. And listening to the spirit, it doesn't mean that we don't think scripture's an authority. It is. It's just not the primary authority. And I've actually been wrestling a little bit over this series. I'm like, okay, so should we really call it Sola Jesus? Should we call it Sola Spiritus? Should it be the Spirit? Maybe it should be Sola Trinity, the Godhead, a Father, Son, and Spirit. But the more I've been kind of reading and delving into this, it seems clear to me that Jesus is the authority of the church, and it's the Spirit's God, guy, um, job to guide us. And I think, well, gosh, that could sound a little bit scary, actually. Right? If Jesus' answer was to like dispense his spirit into humankind, like people can come up with all kinds of wacky things that they think that God is saying to them, right? I've seen some doozies over the years. And I think, well, that, that's true. But that's why it's not the only authority. There's other filters that we use, and that includes the Bible. And it includes our community. It includes like communal discernment. It includes reason. It includes experience. And we also really need, yeah, the, from our Methodist over here, wait, you know. <laughs> it, oh, gosh, this will make it longer if I go off on an aside. Yeah, I, I was like, I, just, I kept thinking about John Wesley, because he actually, the Methodist um, rejected Sola Scriptura. And I was talking with Ken, and I was like, you know, they've got that experience, reason, tradition, and scripture. Did I say all those right? I was like, I feel like they're missing a couple. It feels like they're missing the Holy Spirit talking to us today in the communal aspect. And Ken goes, that's what my whole book, Jesus Brand Spirituality, was about. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's been a while since I read that one. <laughs> Glad we're on the same page there. <laughs> so anyway, sorry about that. <laughs> but I think this means that we need to up our game on discernment, which is part of why Ken and I did a series on Galatians, as well as the Sermon on the Mount last fall, talking to us about, like, how, do, how can we tell when the Holy Spirit's at work in our life, our own life as well as others? And part of it is looking at the fruit of the Spirit. What's coming out of what you're doing? Is it love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? And not just for you. It's not just like, is this good for me in my life? It's like, what effect is this having on the lives of people around me as well? Is it bringing them life? Is it bringing me life? And that's part of the discernment process. So, with that said, we might say, okay, well, is there an example in the scripture where we can see the early church trying to work this out? Like, how did they view scripture? How did they view tradition and the Holy Spirit? And the one that keeps coming to my mind is one I preached on maybe six years ago, and it's the story of Antioch. So I know that some of you may not be familiar with this story in the book of Acts, and so to set it up, I'm going to tell you about two cities and one procedure. Okay, so the first city is Jerusalem. Right, Jerusalem, I think we most of us know, it's where Jesus died, he was resurrected. And in the early days after Jesus ascended, that's where like the center of his early followers were gathering, right? This was the leadership of the early Jesus movement. And they were almost all of them Jewish, not all, but most of them, right? So they were gathered there, they were still considered an offshoot of Judaism, they were just called the way. They were like a sect or an offshoot. So you've got Jerusalem, and then the second city we're going to be talking about is Antioch. And Antioch is a city that is in modern-day Turkey today, and it was actually the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So it was a pretty important city. It hosted things like the Olympic Games. The, all the money was minted there, so the money that Jesus used was probably made in Antioch. 
It was located on one of those major trade routes between Europe and Asia, and so there was like a lot of diversity. It was considered like a really cosmopolitan city within the Roman Empire. And so you might think of it like, like maybe like a Chicago or a San Francisco in terms of sort of its regional influence, even though it wouldn't be nearly as big. Right, so we've got Jerusalem and we have Antioch. And then the procedure is, I'm sorry, but circumcision. So circumcision. Um, it's helpful to understand that in Jewish culture, circumcision is an important identity marker. It was and it still is. And it's an identity marker that goes back 4,000 years, and it was first instituted by Abraham. Right, so circumcision is like the physical reminder of the promises that God made to Abraham, that he and his offspring would be part um, of blessing the entire world. It was a promise to Abraham, you and your offspring will go and bless the entire world. So at the time of our story, the terms uncircumcised and Gentile were practically synonymous. Does that make sense? So if you're Jewish, you're circumcised. If you're a Gentile, you're not. If you're Jewish, you're part of the people of God. If you're a Gentile, you are not. If you're Jewish, you are part of God's plan to bless the entire world through Abraham. If you're a Gentile, you are in need of this blessing. And since Gentiles were uncircumcised, that made them unclean, according to the Jewish law. So if you were uncircumcised, you were Gentile, and you were unclean. Many Jewish people wouldn't even eat with Gentiles, right? So all of these terms are intertwined. And because the earliest followers of Jesus were all Jewish, initially there was no question that circumcision would remain a part of the early church. But then some things happened that challenged these early believers. So the story really begins in Jerusalem. Soon after Jesus is ascended into heaven and his followers are gathered there, and there's just waves of persecution going on against them. And these were led by a man named Saul. And Saul was like a major Jewish leader and he was going around and he was killing and he was jailing the leaders and the followers of this Jesus movement. And it said that he was destroying the church there. It said he went from house to house. He dragged off men and women and he put them in prison. And because of the terror that he was inspiring there, people had to leave the city. They were fleeing for their lives. And some of those people eventually landed up in Antioch. Well, not long after this persecution that like scattered the believers around this same Saul had a conversion experience. So he's on his way, he's on the road from Jerusalem up to Damascus, Syria. And he's going up there actually to go around and get some Jesus followers and drag them to jail in Jerusalem. That's his mission. And he's on the way and suddenly he sees a bright light. And he has an encounter, a vision or an encounter with the risen Jesus who says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? And he has this dramatic conversion where he understands that he believes that Jesus is real. And so he decides to make his way to Jerusalem, and he wants to meet with the leaders of this Jesus movement, and he wants to tell them, look, I am sorry, I am in, I have been wrong. I have changed my mind on this. But they didn't want to see him. They were scared of him. They thought that maybe this was a trap because he was so dangerous. But there was a man named Barnabas, and other than Jesus, I think Barnabas might be my favorite character in all of scripture. He was really well-respected and well-loved, and he was a peacemaker, and he went to Saul, and he listened to him, and he believed him, and he took him to the leaders, and he became an advocate and a mentor for him. And so because of Barnabas, Paul was accepted among the leadership, and so he decided to take a few years to go off into Arabia, and then into his home of Syria to go and to study and to pray. 
And so Saul's had this conversion, and he's gone off, and he's now in, in Syria. But meanwhile, some of those people who had been scattered are up in Antioch. And they started telling people not only who were Jews, but they also started to tell Gentiles about the good news of Jesus. Well, news that these Gentiles, these like uncircumcised, unclean people were coming to faith in Jesus soon got back to the people who were in Jerusalem. And when they heard the word that these Gentiles were being preached to, it made them a little bit nervous. And so what'd they do? Well, they gathered their best guy, Barnabas, the guy they trusted, the guy that they respected, and they said, okay, Barnabas, go up to Antioch and go see what's going on. So I think they're clearly nervous about what they're hearing. They send their best guy just to make sure things aren't out of control. And so Barnabas goes up there, and it says that when he arrived, he went to the fellowship and he saw evidence of the grace of God. And so what does that mean, to see evidence of the grace of God? Well, what I imagine, is he walked into this somewhat cosmopolitan urban church and he saw Jew and he saw Gentile and he saw people from different ethnic backgrounds and people from different socioeconomic backgrounds and they were worshiping God together and they were filled with the spirit of God and he said he took this as a sign of God's grace on their community and so rather than be the container that Jerusalem might have hoped for he actually blessed and accelerated what was going on there and in fact he got so excited about what he was seeing that he actually took a trip up into Syria to go get Paul he was like, Paul, you have got to get down here and see this and be part of it, and I will mentor you. Come with me. And so Paul and Barnabas, they went and they worshiped with the fellowship at Antioch for an entire year. And at the end of that, they felt like the Holy Spirit was saying to them that they should go off on like a missionary journey to go and start other churches like that. And it, it kind of was like, oh, it'd be like if some people here decided to go off and start some other blue ocean churches. Right? And I, I don't think that either Paul or Barnabas were expecting to do this when they went to Antioch. That was not like why they were going, but they felt like the Holy Spirit instructed them to do it, and so they did. And then something unexpected happened. They went out and they went into parts of southern Europe, and pretty soon so many Gentiles came to faith in Jesus that they actually outnumbered the Jewish believers. Right? So initially you had a mostly Jewish contingent in the way, and that rapidly changed after Antioch sent out Paul and Barnabas. And what this did was it caused a little bit of tension in the early church. It caused some of the people in Jerusalem to want to control what was going on. So when Paul and Barnabas came back to Antioch after that, there were some Jewish believers from down near Jerusalem who traveled up to Antioch, and they started teaching people that in order to be part of this Jesus movement, you had to be circumcised. Right? They wanted to enforce that cultural identity marker of the people of God to mark them out over and against people that they considered pagans. Right? Like you're letting these people in, and they're nothing more than pagans. They have to be circumcised. They have to follow the law of Moses. They have to at least look like they have converted. And Paul and Barnabas, they were like, you know, that's a really big barrier, especially probably for men, to come to faith in Jesus. <laughs> and so Paul and Barnabas, they got into a really big argument with these guys. And eventually, Paul and Barnabas and some others, they went down to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders there to discuss this issue. This was called the Jerusalem Council. And so Paul and Barnabas, they got up and they reported what was going on in Antioch to the leaders. And they said, look, people are coming to faith in Jesus. They're confessing Jesus as Lord, and there's evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in their lives. And it says that the leaders in Jerusalem, they were really encouraged by this. But then some of the leaders in that party, they were from the party of the Pharisees. So there were some Pharisees who came to faith in Jesus, right, who were following Jesus 
And they were part of the leadership here in Jerusalem in the early Jesus movement. And so Pharisees, it seems like their instinct seems to be to try and figure out like who's in and who's out. And maybe they hadn't let some of that go. And so they were insisting like, no, the Gentiles have to be circumcised. They have to keep the law of Moses in order to belong to the faith. You make a little side note. I actually think there's a pretty good argument for Jewish followers of Jesus to do that. But they were saying not for the Gentiles. So I have a little bit of sympathy actually for these, for the Pharisees. Because they had some really major concerns going on. You know, they're looking at it and they're thinking, you know, gosh, they don't have a real high view of Gentile morality. And they're worried about these Gentiles now coming into the faith. It's kind of a new movement and kind of polluting it, so to speak. And they're worried about what people are going to say. Like, ah, you know, we're already taking all this flack and being persecuted for following this Jesus within Judaism, and now you're going to invite all these other people in? Like, that's kind of a scary concept. Plus, they were in Jerusalem, and so they're still sharing about Jesus to their fellow Jews in that region, and that doesn't make their job any easier, right? When people are finding out that all of these Gentiles are coming into the faith on what must seem to be very easy terms, so you've got this tension, and then Peter gets up, and he speaks, and he's followed by Paul and Barnabas. And Peter says, you know, God knows the heart, and he has shown that he has accepted these Gentiles by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He didn't discriminate between us and them. There, there is no us and them going on here. He purified their hearts by faith. So why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Like, right, let's be honest with each other here. You see, there was a prejudice against Gentiles that was backed up by both scripture and tradition. This is kind of the crux. Let me say that again. There was a prejudice against Gentiles that was backed up by both scripture and tradition. You understand the, the understanding of the Hebrew scriptures up to that point didn't have an understanding that Gentiles were also going to be part of God's plan of blessing the entire world. I think people can see it when we look back, but that was not part of the thinking of the day and certainly not tradition. Like there's a Gentile here and there in the Old Testament. You look at Ruth or Rahab or Jonah had to go to Nineveh. That's kind of a weird story. But for the most part, that is not the ark of the Old Testament. And then here we have Peter and Barnabas and Paul and the only evidence that they are providing to the Jerusalem elders that God was including the uncircumcised in the family of Abraham was the evidence of their faith and the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's it. They believe in God and the Holy Spirit is present in their lives. And so then we have to ask, well, what did the elders do? Like, what did they turn to? Did they say, well, you know what? Scripture's the final authority. We'll go with that. Tradition's the final authority. We'll go with that. They didn't. I think they probably considered both of those things. But the final authority they appealed to was the Holy Spirit and the evidence that God was at work. And so the leaders in Jerusalem, this is including Jesus' brother James, who was the leader of that, of that um, group in Jerusalem, they agreed with Paul and Barnabas and Peter. And they agreed to put very few requirements on that church up in Antioch. They didn't require circumcision. And in fact, I kind of giggle at it now because the two things that they, they did require or ask of the Antioch church, Paul later argues against. But, you know, I can just imagine him being like, oh my gosh, this was enough of a battle. I'll just take what I can get, <laughs> you know. So they go and Antioch becomes, you know, actually one of the centers of Christianity for the next 1,500 years after that. So there's a lot of history here. 
And I can hear, I always try and hear like my sister Mindy in my head, why do we care? <laughs> and there's a few reasons. The first one is that I think Sola Jesus tells us that our chief job as a Christian isn't to know scripture, it's good, it's helpful, but our chief job is to know Jesus. And that we can know him through scripture, but we also know him through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. And I think about, there's a lot of people on this planet who are illiterate. And I still think they can know God through the Spirit who is love. And I think we can learn to tap into that. The second reason is I think it can be a relief for people to know that the Bible isn't always clear. Right? It's not a life manual that's filled with answers. It doesn't directly address many questions that we have about ethics or about how to live. You know, we can't look up bioethics or cloning in like an index and turn to it and be like, okay, that's how we should believe, right? I think this is actually better. That's not really the route to wisdom, is it? Just being told what you should believe. The route to wisdom is looking at a text and seeing how humans have wrestled and how they have worked with God and how they've seen God work and then say, okay, we're getting a picture of the character of God and then you wrestle with God over this issue and with each other, within community. And you test the fruit of it. You test the, what's coming out of what it is that we are doing. That's where growth often happens. And I think we can come to different conclusions sometimes about what God is speaking. But if we've got disputable matters and understand that Jesus is the authority of the church, I think we can treat one another charitably and give each other a lot of grace. The third reason is solo Jesus affects the way we interact with other believers. Right, churches have a long history of not playing nicely together based on how they read scripture. In fact, they've even killed each other sometimes. But that's really been changing in the last decades. I don't know if you understand the times we're living in. Like you saw the Pope met with the Russian patriarch. Was that like last week, the week before? I mean, this is, I think, the first time those two churches have ever come together. The great schism between the East and the West, in like 1054 is when that happened. This is a massive breaking down of barriers. Where we're at right now is a symptom of what's going on in the church today. We're sharing a building with Episcopalians and with the Jewish Reformed Church. Right? So what's happening are the barriers between these different segments of the church and even sometimes between faiths are starting to break down and we are starting to come together. So one of our Blue Ocean core values is that we're ecumenical meaning that we're promoting peacemaking and unity among various churches, right? We can work together. We're in an age where we've discovered our parts. If we're the body of Christ, we've kind of discovered what makes us different. Who's a muscle cell? Who's a blood cell? Who's an arm? Who's a leg? Like, we know how different we are. But now it's time to come together because, man, if there's anything that the world needs, it needs the body of Christ in unity working for love and peace and justice. Yeah, I think it's... I kind of get chills. You know, they, they call this the second reformation of what's happening. You know, next year marks exactly 500 years since Martin Luther nailed the theses to the Wittenberg door. And in the larger sort of academia, they're calling this the second reformation or the great emergence as the church is starting to come back together and realizing that Sola Scriptura hasn't worked for us. And so we're heading into the age of Sola Jesus, or Phyllis Tickle would say the age of the Spirit, come Lord Jesus. And the fourth reason we should care is I think this is actually a more faithful view of the Bible. I hope you guys know and can tell. I, I love the Bible. Like, I love history. I love studying scripture. 
But the Bible is a book of witness. It's a book of witness and testimony of humans and of how they have experienced God and how they understand God through the ages and how he works in the world. But the Bible is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Amen. All right. So that was a little long. Antioch. <laughs> We've been thinking about, you know, teaching a few like calming prayer practices. I know I've gone over a little bit, but we are going to do the two minutes of silence. Let's just go ahead and press into it. Let's just talk a little bit about the gratitude examine. So the gratitude examine is an Ignatian, uh, piece of Ignatian spirituality. And how you do it is this. If you're at home, it's usually done at the end of the day, maybe while you're lying in bed, sometime before bed, and you just calm your mind, and then you start to walk through your day, and you start to think of everything that's happened, and you sort of ignore the things that bothered you or annoyed you, like you can kind of like acknowledge them but let them go, but everything that you can see that you're thankful for, thank you, thank you, Lord, for that wonderful toast and butter I had. Thank you, Lord, that Rachel makes me coffee every morning. Thank you, Lord, that I have a car. And that's what you do. And you just run through your day and let that happen. So we're going to do an abbreviated version of that this morning. We'll take a couple of minutes and just walk through your day, starting from when you got up this morning. And just say thank you to God. I'll go ahead and keep an eye on the time. Come, Lord. Thank you, Lord, and amen. amen. A way you can integrate this into your prayer beads, if you're using prayer beads, is those little prayer beads between your six. Just say one thing you're thankful for for each one of them, if you'd like to try that out.